In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, today we consider the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. And this parable is an analogy for the entire history of the church of God in the world from the beginning to the end. And there's nothing new under the sun. So the parable, uh, the pattern of this parable repeats over and over again until the end of the world in some way. So even though Jesus was speaking about very specific things in this parable 2,000 years ago when he first said it, it still applies to us here today. So to show you this, the way I'm going to preach this is I'll work my way through the parable, which has five different parts, five different what you would call scenes. And for each part, I'll tell you what it meant historically first, and then what it means for us today, how it's still applicable today. So the first part of his parable, he says this. Jesus says that a king threw a wedding feast for his son. And he sends servants to go invite people to the feast. And then people made excuses not to come. Even more, some even mistreated the servants who invited them and even murdered them. This is the story of God and Israel. God and the Jews. He sent his prophets to bring them to repentance so that they would have eternal life. But instead, Israel rejected and murdered those prophets. The prophet Isaiah, as you heard in the Old Testament lesson, uh, preached to Israel. He said these beautiful words of salvation. He said, come and buy food without money. Come buy wine and milk without price. And he was speaking of eternal life. That it was freely given for no exchange of money, no exchange of works, nothing. It was freely given. And what did Israel do to the man who said these words? They sawed Isaiah in half for speaking these words. Jeremiah went to Israel preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and they stoned him to death. Zechariah did the same, and they killed him in the temple. Jesus sends out his dear apostles. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Stephen was stoned. James was put to death at the hands of Herod. Bartholomew was boiled alive and then skinned and then beheaded. This is how Israel treated the prophets and the apostles who preached repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. This is simply how unbelievers respond to God's word. And this is how they treat those who were sent by God to preach it. This is true even today. The world hates truth. They try to cancel and suppress and destroy anyone who speaks the truth. And this happens especially to pastors as well, even in their own churches. When pastors preach the word, many don't like how intolerant it sounds. By calling people to repentance, when they call homosexuality and transgenderism and feminism and divorce and cohabitation, when pastors and lectors, abortion, things like these, when they call these things sin, things that are against the word, the clear word of God, there is backlash. And a lot of that backlash comes from their own dear members. Many don't like the liturgy or Lutheran hymns or the practice of closed communion. 
They don't like when the pastor tells them what God, God's word says about their life. And so <clears throat> today we don't see murder of pastors. We do around the world, but it hasn't happened here in the States yet. Uh, but here we see something different. We see members seek to unjustly remove their pastor from the office in which God has rightly placed them. Others will stop giving offering to support the pastor and his family and so give him the ultimatum or the option of either one, leave the church, or two, starve to death. And this has happened countless times. Others leave the church in anger and rob him of his livelihood. Others try to ruin his reputation, slander him, get others to leave the congregation too. And none of this is because I'm not talking about situations where the pastor scandalized the congregation or done anything wrong. It's simply when the congregation doesn't like the word that's being preached. They don't like the words that, he is, that are coming out of his mouth. And so this is how unbelievers respond to those who preach God's word. They, those who do this, those who do these things, are not Christians. By the way, I'm, I'm saying all of this so that you're never surprised why your own friends or family or even your own children who've left the faith reject you and what you've said. If someone rejects you for speaking God's word, it's not because you didn't say it the right way or because you could have done more or because you could have been more loving when you spoke it or you should have taken another evangelism class or something like this and that then you would have been successful in this way. That's not it. Don't torture yourself over why people reject the word of God and you along with it. There have been thousands and thousands of years of this invitation going out through the mouths of so many people and nothing has ever changed the fact that so many people hate being called to repentance. We don't like it. We hate it with all our hearts. So don't think that here in the 21st century we're going to crack the code and figure it out. Somehow we're going to make the word of God trendy and palatable uh, to the world and convert the world by our methods or techniques and strategies. It won't work. The world doesn't like the world. The, the world didn't like the word back then, and they don't like it now. So don't be surprised when you're rejected uh, for speaking the word of God too. Now, in the second part of the parable, Jesus says that because of this rejection of the word and of his preachers, <clears throat> he said this. He said the king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed these murderers and burned their city. Historically speaking, Jesus is talking about one specific event. He's talking about one specific place, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. Here he is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. Back in August, we observed the 10th Sunday of Trinity uh, when I preached about the destruction of Jerusalem. What I said uh, there was that what Jesus said clearly and plainly in Luke 19 is what he says figuratively here in Matthew 22. And the point, the, the basic point is this, that God will avenge the blood of his prophets and of his people. Israel mistreated and killed the prophets and God destroyed everything they had. In the same way today, God will pour out his vengeance upon those who mistreat and kill God's faithful pastors and his Christians today. We see pastors mistreated and imprisoned, Christians even murdered around the world today. 
But it's not for us to get vengeance because vengeance is the Lord's. God will judge. Now, the thing is, God does not do this simply and only to specific people, but he also does it to entire congregations. Churches that will malign their pastors or despise the word or mistreat them or unjustly remove them, they never, they never do well after the fact. They never do. Even when it seems like they're doing well, they're not. At first, the congregation seems elated that they've won some specific battle. We've shut this guy up. He's no longer saying these uh, hateful and bigoted things in our, our, our pulpit anymore. He's out of here. But soon after, God turns these churches against themselves, within themselves. They deteriorate from the inside and they eat their own. He turns them to themselves. And I don't want you to judge by how it looks or appears. Many times these congregations are still full of numbers and finances and people. But what God does is he removes his word from there. He removes the preaching of Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. He takes it away from them. He fills the pews, but he empties the pulpit. And this is God's doing. If God's word is met with ingratitude, then he will take his word away and give it to someone else. This is a warning to all of us to never despise the word of God while we have it. Okay, now the third part of the parable. Um, After he sends the invitation and those who invited them are killed and then after the king responds and destroys them, the third part of the parable is this, is that Jesus says that the king told his servants, well, now go invite everyone else. Go and find anyone else, regardless of whether they are good or bad, is what he says. Historically speaking, Jesus is talking about the word going out to the Gentiles. And this was his plan all along. He saved the Gentiles in the Old Testament. He did the same in the New Testament. And the word goes out to all people, to all those who believe in his name. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what he's he's talking about. But what does this look like for us today here? Well, today it looks like this. That there are some who founded this congregation who want nothing to do with it anymore. There are some who are sitting in these same chairs as you are just a couple years ago, but they're nowhere to be found today. They despised the word. You haven't. You've heard it and you've rejoiced and you're here. Thanks be to God for that. But their invitation has been taken away and it has been given to another. It has been given to you. Their seat has been taken away and is now occupied by you. Their place at this altar has been taken away and given to you. And God has gathered you all here today, both good and bad, and he has filled his church with you. By the way, this too is a warning. And the warning is that if you too go the way of the others, then the place that you have right now will be taken away from you. And it will be given to another. So don't, again, don't despise the word while you have it. 
Uh, now we come to the uh, final part here. And the parable ends with another warning here. <clears throat> Jesus says that when the king comes in, he sees a man without a wedding garment and the man was speechless. And then that this man was cast into the outer darkness, that is hell. Now, uh, I have to explain this quite a bit. Um, this part of the parable doesn't make sense unless you know this point, that in the New Testament times, wedding garments were oftentimes given to the people by the host to wear. Any of the guests, that was their entrance into the wedding, was that garment. The closest thing we have today to something like this is like the bridesmaids' dresses or the groomsmen's suits or tuxedos, something like this. Uh, sometimes the bride and groom will buy and give this clothing to their friends to wear in the wedding. Now, I want you to imagine how disrespectful it would be uh, for someone to show up to the wedding without wearing the gift or the thing that was given to them. So imagine you're getting married, you bought a beautiful dress for all of your bridesmaids to wear, and now imagine it's time for the wedding. One of them shows up minutes before the wedding starts. Uh, she walks into church and she's wearing uh, sweatpants and a t-shirt, something like this. And you ask her, you say, um, what are you doing? Where's the dress? Why are you wearing that? Um, why aren't you wearing the dress that I bought you? That's the requirement that you had one job. That's the one thing you're supposed to do. And then she responds and says nothing. She's speechless. Now, I imagine that you would find it just a little bit disrespectful and that you'd tell her to go home and never come back again, right? Um, especially if there's no defense for this. I, in fact, I've seen friendships end over less things. I've seen families break apart over less than things like that. Now, so this is what's sort of going on in the parable here today. The king provides the clothing for all of the guests, and one of the guests shows up, and he's not wearing it. He's without the clothing, and the king asks him why, and he has no response. He has nothing to say. He's speechless. So he throws him out of the wedding. So what does this mean? Well, that clothing that he's talking about is the king, that, that the king gives is the very righteousness of Christ. This is what he's talking about. Isaiah 61 says, God has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. This clothing is Christ and his righteousness, and he has clothed you in your baptism. Galatians 3 says it plainly. For as many of you as were baptized have put on Christ. That is, you're wearing him. This is the wedding garment that Christ is talking of, his righteousness. So to not wear it, <clears throat> this means that one who does not have the wedding garment in this parable is the one who has taken Christ off of himself. To be without the wedding garment means to despise your baptism. It means to walk away from the word of God through impenitence, through unbelief. In fact, everyone who tries to get into the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven without Jesus, dressed in their own good works and righteousness, will be cast into hell forever. That's what he's saying. All who do this now will be exposed on the last day and be cast out forever. 
So what, what does that mean for us here today? This parable teaches us this, that there are two ways to reject salvation. On the one hand, you can reject salvation without ever stepping a foot into the church that is rejecting it at the invitation. And on the other hand, you can reject salvation while being in the church. In other words, you can be in the church without being in the church. You can physically be in the church while spiritually being outside of the church. You see this? You can sit in the pew while your heart and your mind is elsewhere. And this is what he's saying. To be at the banquet, but not dressed in the clothing that is free and full that he gave you. The first part of the parable is a warning to those who make excuses and just simply don't come to church, who hate the word of God. That is one way to despise it. But the second part, this part of the parable, is a warning to those who do come to church. It's simply not enough to show up and go through the motions mindlessly. It's not enough that you physically sit here in church, but you don't pay attention to the words. Your heart can't cling to the word of God if you don't pay attention to it. There's nothing to cling to. Or you, you, your heart can't cling to the word of God while it's also clinging to a grudge against your brother and despising him. Your heart isn't clinging to the word of God if you come to church only because you have to or because to, to get a paycheck or if it's your turn to volunteer, or if there's a meeting or a vote or something ridiculous. Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips. That is, their mouths are making all of the movements, saying the right things. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That means you can go through the motions. You can give offering when it's collected. You can hold the hymnal the right way and follow along and recite the words from memory if you want. But if you don't listen to it, if you don't believe it, if faith does not apprehend the word of the promises of God, if your heart doesn't rely upon the forgiveness of sins and repent of your sins, clinging to the wounds of Christ for your forgiveness, then you will not receive the benefit of it. That is, you will not receive the forgiveness that it gives. Faith clings to the word and it won't let the word go in your ear without grabbing a hold of it with your heart. That's what faith does. It will not let the word of God go. The, the, the problem here, <clears throat> I, I, I want to be clear here. The problem here is that I can't tell who is sincere and who is not. As your pastor, I just take you at your word. I hear your confession, and I say, well, you said the right thing, and I trust, and I'm going to put the best construction in that you mean what you're saying. But I, I don't, and nobody has a special ability to look into other people's hearts and see if they're being genuine or if it's true or not, or if it's sincere. The Bible says that hypocrites are going to remain in the church until the final day, that there will be people in the church that don't really believe, but they just go through the motions. On that day, on the final day, God will separate them. God will separate the wheat from the chaff. God will make that known. But until then, we don't know. This is the point. And, and because of that, it's not my job and it's not your job to try and figure it out. To try and figure out if your neighbor is a, a hypocrite or not. 
God will reveal that. So this is what I'm getting at. The purpose of this parable is not for you to find out if your neighbor is a hypocrite. It is to find out if you are. Do you see this? It's not for you to try to look into your neighbor's hearts. It's for you to look into your own heart and see, am I grabbing the word of God? This isn't for you to find out if your neighbor is wearing the wedding garment. It's for you to look at yourself and see if you are. So how do you know if you are? How do you know if you're wearing the wedding garment? How do you know if you have faith? How do you know if your faith is strong enough? Well, what do you see when you look at yourself? Uh, If you're honest with yourself, you'll look at your heart and see that you too have chased after this world. That you have put yourself above your neighbor and above God time and time again. That you've envied and that when you look at your heart, you find pride over what you've done. You've doubted God's word. You've cared more about what others think than about what God thinks. You've been more excited about the news or anything else than about coming to church. And the list goes on. And the more you look at yourself, the more it seems like you're not wearing the wedding garment, actually. The more it seems like you're not clothed in Christ or righteousness. The more honest you are with yourself, the more it seems like you are the hypocrite. You are the one who is in the banquet without the right clothing, like you're the one in the parable who's going to be thrown out on the last day, and it is terrifying. But if this is you... If this is your concern, your fear, then stop looking at yourself because, and stop looking at yourself for assurance because you will never find it there. Stop looking at your own works and the condition of your heart. You look away from yourself and instead remember the one who invited you here to begin with. Remember that it was Jesus who came to you. Jesus, who called you by the gospel, who invited you into his life, into his church, who baptized you and forgave all of your sins and made you his own. Don't go looking at the strength of your own faith or the pain of your failures. The point of this is to get you to look away from yourself and to look instead to Christ. Don't think that you're too sinful and lowly to be invited to his kingdom. In fact, that is precisely why he he invited you here to begin with. It is precisely because you are sinful and lowly that he sought you and brought you in today. Jesus came for sinners. And when you see that you're a sinner, then you know he came for you. He came to bear your sins and die for them on his cross. And so when you can't find certainty in the strength of your own heart, in the strength of your own faith. Then you find certainty in the strength of Christ, your dear Savior, the eternal Son of God who lived and suffered and died and resurrected from the grave for you. Dear saints, when you wonder if you truly have faith anymore, remember that it's only those who truly have faith who even care to ask that question. So take all of those words to heart. 
Repent of your sins and cling to the forgiveness that Jesus declares unto you this day, that he robes you with, that he clothes you with. He has taken off your rags of sin and clothed you in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And just as he brought you in to this banquet here today, on the last day, he promised that all who believe in him will be with him in that heavenly banquet, which has no end. Amen. Hear the words of the hymn that we just sang. Lord, by love and mercy driven, you once left your throne in heaven on the cross for me to languish and to die in bitter anguish, to forego all joy and gladness and to shed your blood in sadness by this blood redeemed and living. Lord, I praise you with thanksgiving. Jesus, bread of life, I pray you, let me gladly here obey you. By your love I am invited. Be your love with love requited. By this supper let me measure. Lord, how vast and deep love's treasure through the gift of grace you give me. As your guest in heaven receive me. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.